0: Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you, and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that you would be made plain, uh, that you would hide me behind your hand, that I would not be a deterrent or a distraction in any way from what you intend to accomplish today among these that are here. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, whether we are joining at Renovation Online or here in the room, and that we would know by the end of this conversation, without a doubt, why Jesus had to die and what it means for our lives. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, with, toward, or away from Jesus, let us hear your voice now, we ask, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When I was still at university, uh, I was struggling, and many of you know that. You've been here long enough to hear me tell a, a few different tales of my struggle, and uh I was really struggling. Uh, I, I believe I was a Christian. I believe that when I prayed the prayer at 16 uh, that I became a Christian that day, uh, but I wasn't a disciple. In, in fact, this gap between belief and behavior is probably one of the primary issues in the Western church, I would say. Um, and and because of that, because of that gap between behavior and belief, I was doing things that I knew were counter to to who I said I was and and to what I said I believed. and. And with that came a great deal of guilt and shame, came a great deal of challenge. And in fact, in fact, I was convinced that I was one sinful act away from God throwing me away forever. I was convinced of that. I was convinced of that. And one day after a, uh, we'll call it, We'll call it a particular bout of foolishness. We'll call it a particular bout of foolishness. One one day after a particular bout of foolishness, I heard the preaching of a man named Alistair Begg, Uh, and I still owe this man a letter of thanks. He has been a long-distance gift to my life for nearly 20 years. Uh, He was telling a story of a theological debate that he had with one of his friends, and as the story goes, his friend believed that one could lose their salvation. Uh, Beg, on the other hand, argued from Jesus' own words, uh, First, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Now, what do you believe the word never means there in the original language? Yeah. Never. You're smart. You're a smart group of people. I will never cast them out. And secondarily, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. His friend rebutted, but you can jump out. So for some reason, he he believed that, that even though no one can come in and take you from the father's hands, that you can power up and jump out of the father's hands. Begs rebuttal. Resonated with me so deeply that I've been telling this story literally for about 20 years. He said to his friend in his rich Scottish accent, are you more powerful than God then? In other words, if we believe that we can remove ourselves from the hand of God once he has put us in his grasp, then we believe that our power exceeds his. I remember sitting under those words, being consumed by them. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this intense relief washed over me. This intense sense of peace washed over me. This intense sense of joy washed over me. And finally, at 21 years old, I finally believed that there was nothing I could do to make God throw me away. That same sermon, Beg mentioned a book by the late John Stock called The Cross of Christ. I recommended if you like good reading. And all it did was reinforce this new view of the love of God that had been so transformative for my life. And it convinced me that the love of God was most and ultimately displayed in that cross. And so to celebrate my renewed faith, um, And my mama didn't like it very much. Uh, But but to celebrate, hey, mama, but to celebrate my renewed faith and and this sense of God's love for me, uh, apart from anything I had done or could do or would do, in order to celebrate my understanding that God would not simply throw me away for the next thing that I did wrong, I went out and I got a tattoo. I got my second tattoo. I got a tattoo of a cross right between my shoulder blades across much like this one. That's definitely not my shoulder blade. It's just a whole controversy. I may as well tell you. It was a whole controversy. I wanted to do a picture of my own back. The, the, the team was divided. They were like, you can't put your naked back up on the screen. I said, it's going to be zoomed in. Nobody will even know that it's my back. And they were like, well, you're brown and it's brown, and they will know that it is your back. And so they chose a less melanated display of God's glory. But the reason I wanted to share that with you is because I wanted you to ask the question, what is so special about the cross? Why, why why, would I go out and get a cross tattooed on my back? Why is the cross important? Well, because the cross is really the symbol of Christianity. It's like our logo, if you will. And it's the ultimate symbol of God's love for you and for me. In fact, The the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, listen to what he says. He says, the Son of God, that is Jesus, loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It is as personal as that. I need you to hear that today. Yes, we believe we have a communal faith, but I need you to understand that if you were the only person, the last person, the last living human being on earth, Jesus would have died to bring you to himself. That's how personal it is. That's how real it is. He loves you that much. And understanding that completely changed my life, family. It changed my relationships. It changed my passions. It still impacts my marriage. It broke generational curses. It set me free from things that I would never think that I would be free from. It changed our family. It changed my friendships. It changed my outlook. It changed my destiny. It changed my direction. It changed everything. It changed everything. And that's what I wanna talk to you about just for a few moments. Why? Does Jesus loving you and giving himself for you, why does that, his death on the cross, why does that change everything in life when we grasp it? Why is that the wholehearted display that changes everything, the wholehearted gift of love that changes everything? Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the highest expression of love. Maybe maybe you think about a boyfriend and a girlfriend on their way to engagement, maybe a husband and a wife or or a mother and a child or or or, or a child and a and a father i don 't know what you think about but but that is the image we need to have in mind that however you think that great love is, however wonderful you think that love is, that God's love is so much greater and he actually displayed it for you and for me when Jesus died on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that any who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He did not come to condemn the world. Nobody ever talks about verse 17. He did not come to condemn the world, but he came to rescue. That is the love of God for you. And it is most ardently displayed in the cross. But the second question you should be asking is, okay, if that is God's love for me, why did it have to be displayed in a cross? In other words, why did Jesus have to die? Well, according to the New Testament, there are at least five reasons. And because I've been preaching for far too long, I've become an alliteration specialist. And so we're going to call them the five Ps for memorability. We're going to call them the five Ps. If you want to write them down, they're going to be coming at you fast. The first reason that Jesus had to die is because of the problem of sin. Jesus had to die because of the problem of sin. You see, you were created in the image of God. Let me tell you what that means. By virtue of being created in the image of God, it means that you have a divine deposit in you from creation. It means that you are capable of amazing things. You are a masterpiece according to Ephesians chapter 2. And because of that, listen, there is something amazing about every human being. There is something noble, something beautiful, something magnificent about every human being. Human beings are capable of extraordinary creativity. Why? Because God was the first ever creative. Human beings are extraordinary at producing great music and great art and great literature. They are capable of great self-sacrifice and devotion and love. But there's another side to the coin, isn't there? we're also capable of quite terrible things. You only have to open your browser and, and look at the news on any given day, there's always something terrible going on in the world. There's always something evil going on around the globe. And our temptation, when, when we see things like that, what is our temptation? Can we be honest today? What is our temptation? Our our temptation is to say, well, those are just evil people doing evil things. But the world is more complex than that, isn't it? The world is more complex than just saying to ourselves, well, those are the evil people and these are the good people and evil people do evil things. No, it is more complex than that because we are more complex, aren't we? You see, the same people who are capable of great love and capable of great devotion and capable of great kindness are also capable of horrible self-serving behavior. I'll start with me. I try to. I've done some incredibly regrettable things in my life. And the unfortunate part about being me is I have a steel trap memory. There are a few of you here and you're like, how did you know my name? And I'm like, (laughs) no, I hear something once and 95% of the time I never forget it. I see it. Oh, Lord, it is not leaving. And so as many good memories as I have, I also remember every horrible thing I've ever done. And sometimes I have to take those things to the cross daily. Daily. As capable as I am. Of good and beautiful and wonderful things. I'm capable of horrific things. I've hurt people. I've hurt people that I love. And if you're honest, you are capable of the same. You are as capable of creating tragedy and pain as you are of creating beauty and love. We all are. And that's the problem of sin. That is the problem we're all facing. Sin compels us to do awful things, things that we regret, even as we are capable of creating great beauty in the world and loving deeply. And the Apostle Paul describes our complex nature this way. Listen to what he says. He says, all of us have sinned. All of us have. What do y'all think all means? So smart. Nobel Prizes for all of you. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? We'll ponder his words for a moment. Let's break them down. One, all. All means all. And sin means sin. And I've discovered over the years, and you'll agree with this. I know you will. Christianity is not complex. It's difficult. It's not like we don't understand it. It's, it's, it's not, now there are some deep and strange things, you know, like why did the bear eat that? You know, hey, I'm not here to answer those questions. Who are the Nephilim? I don't know. But at its core, it's not complex. It's difficult. And that's the difficulty we have, is, is admitting and accepting that we are capable of terrible things. After all of these years following Jesus, 20-plus years following Jesus, can I tell you, I still have a hard time looking at my own sin. That's why the Lord gave us spouses and friends. Because when you won't look, they will. And they will show you. You see how they're acting right now? They got that from you. I still have a hard time looking at my own sin. And it is hard for me to admit to myself. In fact, sometimes I get frustrated. I'm like, you've been doing this for so long. Why are you still struggling? Why are you still wrestling with this? You've been doing this too long to still be dealing with this. It is hard to look at it. And guess what? Because of that, we want to make excuses. We want to make excuses. We want it to be out there. We want it to be other. We want it to be somebody else's deal. Because admitting that we too are capable of creating catastrophe is incredibly difficult. But if we are honest, if we are honest, everybody in here, Renovation Online, you know it too. We have all done things that we are ashamed of. We've all done things that we know are wrong. Why? Because we have a problem. We have a problem, the problem of sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One pastor illustrates it this way. He, he said, in order to capture Paul's meaning, he was speaking to a group of people, he was speaking to a church. And, and he said, suppose that there was a scale upon which you could put all human beings. There's a scale you can put all human beings, right? And it would weigh out who's good and who's bad. Who would you put at the top? And some of the people there in that crowd, they say, you know, we put Mother Teresa up there. We, we put Sojourner Truth up there. We, you know, we put my mama up there, and depending on what your relationship is like, you know. And, 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 and if you put those at the top, who would you put at the bottom? What do you think the people said? Well, classically, we put Adolf Hitler down there, Mussolini, Stalin, Pol Pot, my boss. Like that's <laughs> that's who we put at the bottom. And and, 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 the people, and and he said to the people, and so more than likely, most of us will be found somewhere in the middle, yes? Yeah. Yeah, Pastor. Being a humble man, he turned to the people and he said, you know, I'm, I'm probably somewhere near down here. Wouldn't you agree? And, and they were like, yeah, well, Pastor, we agree. <laughs> and you would put yourself somewhere near the top. And they said, yeah, yeah, I mean, I do mostly the right thing. Yeah, I put myself somewhere near the top. And then he had them. Because then he said, okay. But what's the standard? If everybody's on a scale, what is the standard that weighs out what's good and what's bad? Is the universe inherently moral? No. So where does the standard come from? Oh, he got them now. The standard comes from Jesus. Jesus. And so when you look at the standard that Jesus sets, he's not at the top of the scale. He's not at the top of the ceiling. He's not even in the sky or the universe. He is so high that we can't even see him. And that is the standard that we're supposed to live by. And the Bible says you're not getting up there by yourself. My glory is too high for you to obtain in your own power. We've all fallen short, and we all will fall short. And so maybe you say to yourself, well, if that's the case, we're all in the same boat, so everything's good. We're all, we're all on the struggle bus. So why does this matter? I'm going to tell you why it matters. It, it matters because in addition to the problem of sin, there's the pollution of sin. There's the pollution of sin. The pollution of sin had to be addressed. It's not that we just sometimes do regrettable things, but that those things that we do wrong, they actually spoil our lives and spoil our souls and spoil our relationships. Just like the pollution of the environment is a problem. Jesus says that it is possible that through your behavior, through your actions, through your choices, through what you see be careful, little eyes, what you see, through what you ingest, that you are actually polluting your soul. I look back 20 years and I'm like, "Why was I always fighting? Well, when you start out your day listening to the knuck if you buck, then you probably are going to be looking for trouble at some point during that day. What we take in takes hold. And it can pollute our souls. It can spoil our relationships. So not only do we have the problem of sin and the pollution of sin, but guess what? We also have to deal with the power of sin. We have to deal, the the power of sin had to be dealt with. Not only does does sin, the sin problem, disrupt our capacity to be the masterpiece we were made to be, uh, and not only does sin spoil and pollute our souls, but sin in our life, the bad habits, the patterns, the practices, the choices, guess what, they're incredibly addictive. They're addictive. In fact, Jesus says it this way, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And you know what that word means to be in that type of relationship to something. And if we are honest, we know that at some point, maybe even right now, all of us have been a slave to sin. It is orchestrating your life. It is orchestrating your choices. It is orchestrating your going to bed and waking up time. It is orchestrating how you go to work and when you leave work. It is orchestrating how you talk to your friends and your spouse. Sin, when we give it any control, even if we think we're in control, we're actually being controlled. It's incredibly addictive. It's incredibly powerful. A little levity. Can we have a little levity? My dad, uh, don't get mad at me, Baba. I love you. You're the best. You're the greatest. You're my mentor, and my hero, and all of that. And I'll make some red beans and rice next week. My dad is well known for his sweet tooth. In fact, he's notorious for eating ice cream at night. I don't even know how he does it. He makes a giant bowl of ice cream, then he lines the bowl with chocolate chip cookies so that he can have himself an assortment of ice cream sandwiches. And then sometimes he throws a little square of cheddar cheese on top because he says that the sweet and, and the savory, oh, it's actually really good. The sweet and the savory comes together in a beautiful melange. This man has been eating like this his entire life. And you know what? I'm a little bitter. I'm a little bitter. Because he eats like this and he don't gain no weight. 80 years almost. And this man has weighed 180 pounds since I've known him. And he still lifts weights every day. I said, what's your secret, dad? He said, curls and ice cream, son. Curls. (laughs) (laughs) Me, on the other hand, I look at a lollipop. And I know it's going to cost me an hour on the treadmill. Cake, forget about it. May as well move those clothes to the back of my closet. I didn't get those jeans. And so sometimes I can't wear my jeans. And at the same time, listen, I'm a known sugar addict. (laughs) Somebody was feeding my habit between services. I was like, what you got in that bag? I got these cheeseburgers. I'm a known sugar addict. And I have, been, I have been clean for several years when I met my wife. And then she got me back on. She got me back on. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. Every time I do it, I feel terrible afterwards. I feel icky. Icky. Bleh. I look in the mirror. I'm like, look at yourself. Covered in sugar from Sour Patch Kids. What kind of, <laughs> kind of example can you be to anyone? And <laughs> the next day, it. <laughs> because it has so much power, I'm back at it. I mean, it's funny. I, I have, a, have a bag of, of gummy Skittles in my console right now. And I thought about going and getting them between services. I was like, no, fight. You're better than this. I know that's a little levity, but I I hope you see the application. Sin is very much the same way. We take a taste. Listen, did you know your Bible actually says sin is fun for a season? We take a taste, we think we're in control, but the power calls us back, it calls us back, it calls us back, it calls us back. back. Because it's incredibly addictive. The power of sin had to be dealt with. Not only did the power of sin have to be dealt with, but the penalty of sin had to be dealt with. The penalty of sin had to be, listen, sin comes with a penalty. There's an attached penalty to sin that I believe is innate in all of us. Even if we try to suppress it, we know wrong is wrong. Here's what I mean. There's something within us that cries out for justice, isn't there? We see something wrong, we cry out for justice. We see something horrible, we say, those people need to be dealt with. Somebody needs to stop him. This can't go on. That should not be. They should be brought to justice. They should be dealt with. They should have their wrong addressed. And while we're they in, we're missing the me. There's a problem that is innate to us, that we understand that there's a penalty attached to sin, and yet when it comes to justice, we've got a bit of a double standard, don't we? I remember talking to one of my friends recently, and I won't bore you with a long story, but, but the long and short of it is there was something going on in the world. He said, if God is real, why don't he get involved in that because that's just wrong. And I had the whole conversation, well, who sets the scale and how do you get to moral balance? And if that is just wrong and you think God should be involved, do you think it should be the same for you too? But see, that's the thing. We want God to be just with everybody else and loving with us. We want to judge everybody else by their actions and judge ourselves by our intentions. And so we have this double standard that they need to be dealt with. But, if, but I told him, and I told him this, because he said, this is the reason I'm struggling with my faith. And I said, well, I understand that. But if you want God to be consistent across the board, then he's got to deal with you too. And there's a penalty attached to your choices. We live in that double standard. I I have a double standard. And it's not a double standard that causes me to question my faith. It's a double standard that makes me look at certain things and say, I want it to be that way for you, but I want it to be different for me. So we understand justice. And we understand that there's a penalty attached to things that are wrong. This is why Paul says in Romans 2.1, you therefore have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else. For whatever, you, whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And for me, I'm only talking about me. I can't talk about you. But for me, I find myself often wrestling with what I think is wrong when I see it in somebody else but not wanting to face it in myself. The fifth and final P is the partition of sin. The partition of sin. Sin separates us from God. And we innately understand this too. You offend somebody or they offend you, then the ministry of avoidance is born. And you know what I'm, the ministry of avoidance is strong in church. And it's like, what service do they go to? Oh, I go to the other service now because they offended me. Hey. 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 But really, it's like, I would cut you if I could. Oh. Right? This is going on in, in, in our hearts. Thank you for that honesty in Jesus' name. Sin separates. And we understand it in our life and yet we don't seem to apply it to God. That that when we do offensive and offendable things to an almighty and perfect and holy God, we don't think that it's supposed to create distance. But it creates different distance. It, It creates separation. That's the bad news. The good news is that God himself decided to be the solution. He decided to close the gap. Why? Because God loves you. He loves you. Listen to what what, uh, the Bible says one more time in Galatians 2.20. He loves you and he gave himself for you. He came to earth in the person of Jesus so that he could do something about that division. In fact, he came to deal with all five Ps and we're going to walk through them in reverse and I'm going to call it a day. You see, the solution that God has provided, number one, number one is that He has dealt with our sin through self-substitution. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross and by his wounds we have been healed. It's called substitutionary atonement. There's a True story of a courageous, selfless woman that may help us get our minds around this. Her name is Nirja Banat. She sacrificed her life to save the lives of others. And her story is a powerful one. On September 5th, 1986, a Pan Am aircraft, Flight 73, was hijacked by four heavily armed terrorists. And even though the passengers on the plane were from every nation, the focus of the terrorists was Americans. And so the first thing that, that Nirja did is she went around and collected and discarded all of the American passports so that the terrorists wouldn't know who the Americans were and thereby saved 39 out of 41 lives. Eventually the terrorists lost their cool. They began to open fire on the plane. And Nirja noticed that there were three kids sitting unattended with nobody to protect them. And so she put herself between them and the bullets. And she gave her life so that she could save those children. She gave herself for them. And that is what, that is what the word is trying to communicate to us, that, that even in a more amazing and wonderful way, Jesus gave himself. He died in your place, in my place, because he loved you and he gave himself for you. cross is the height of pain and the depth of shame, and yet when you read the New Testament, that is not what it focuses on. What it focuses on is not the sacrifice itself, but the uniqueness of his crucifixion, the uniqueness of what was accounted for and what he did. When he did it, he was bearing on himself my guilt, my shame, my fault, my brokenness, my separation, everything that was mine, he bore on himself. In fact, Isaiah 53, 6 says this, we all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's how I want you to think about that verse. I want you to look at this hand, and this is you. This is you. And on top of you, laid over your life, is a ledger of everything that you've ever done, the things that nobody knows about. Every secret thought, every vindictive idea, every cutting word, it's in this ledger and it's hanging over you. And this hand, well, this is Jesus, and he's free and clear. He's never done anything wrong. He's never harmed anyone. He's never said anything foul. He's never run afoul of the will of the Father. He has lived in absolute perfection. Over here is us with the Bible saying that even every word that we have ever spoken will be judged by God. Help me, Lord. And over here is Jesus. And what that little verse is saying to us today is that God in his kindness took your ledger and laid it on Jesus he took your yeah that's where you would say amen he took your ledger and he laid it on Jesus and he accounted to Jesus all your wrongs and he accounted to you all Jesus rights so that you no longer live under the weight of your ledger You live under the freedom of Christ. Amen. And so as we land this plane, we're going to reverse those Ps so that you understand what Jesus has accomplished for you. The first thing that Jesus did was eliminate the partition. He said, you can come home. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, meaning that he was reconciling all things back to himself. He eliminated the division. He eliminated the partition. He eliminated the separation. He he eliminated it all. God was not just uh, randomly punishing Jesus. He was putting Jesus in our place so that we could stand in his place before a holy God. Maybe you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorites. If you're not familiar with the story, let me give you a high-level overview. The youngest son comes to his father, says, I want my inheritance right now. And in ancient Near Eastern culture, for me to come to you and say, I want my inheritance right now, is essentially wishing that you were dead. And his father, being kind and generous, says, okay, son, do what you want to do. And he gives him his inheritance. And he goes out, and the Bible says that he gets himself caught up in wild living. That's literally what it says. And he finds himself mm-hmm, and he finds himself in a pigsty. And he says that by the time he hit the pigsty, he came to his senses and he thought to himself, even the servants in my father's house live better than this. So he went home. And you know what you would expect on the other side of that story from how some of us grew up? That when he got home, his daddy was like, you stupid fool. Didn't I tell you what was going to happen? Didn't I tell you if you went out here and made a fool of yourself, they was going to take all your money? Didn't I tell you it wasn't that cute in the first place? They just wanted to get in your pockets. Didn't I tell you? No, that's not what we find. No, we find a grieving and celebratory father. We find a father who I imagine has been standing at the roadside every day saying, is my boy coming home today? Do I see him over the hill? Is my boy coming home today? Is is this the day that he's going to come home? Lord God, send my son home. And then one day his son crests the hill. And it says the father ran full speed toward his son and scooped him up and kissed him and restored his place and put a ring on his finger and a robe on his shoulder and through a party a celebration that he had returned home there wasn't any condemnation for what he did only celebration for when he came back that is what God says: you can come home and there's not a whooping waiting for you it's a ring and a kiss and a hug oh parents we could do too Model some of that in our lives. You can come home. The partition has been destroyed. Not only has the partition been destroyed, but the penalty, been the penalty has been paid. The penalty has been paid. The penalty has been taken care of. In fact, we could illustrate it this way if you can think about it for a moment. I want you to imagine two friends. They grow up together. One of them becomes a judge. It's kind of like the story of the show power. One of them, um, oh no. <laughs> One of them becomes a judge, the other one becomes a criminal. One of them becomes a judge, the other one becomes a criminal. And one day as the judge is presiding over his courtroom, his own friend comes in. And he sees his friend and he's heartbroken. What in the world have you done? And he's put in a position in that moment that he has got to render justice. We don't want criminals just running around. He's got to render justice. And why don't we suppose that the justice that he had to render was a fine that had to be paid? Let's call it $26,000. Here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine the judge, because he's just saying, because you've done this crime, I have to judge it, and the cost is going to be $26,000. And then he takes off his robe. He walks around his desk. He sits next to his friend. And then he writes the check for the fine. That's what God has accomplished in Christ. Yes, he's just. And he has to be just because you and I want justice for those things that we know are wrong. But because he's also love, he's the one that wrote the check so that the penalty and the fine can be covered. The partition is gone. The penalty is covered. The power is broken. The power is broken. He or she whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. You don't have to be enslaved to sin when you are linked to Christ. The partition is gone. The penalty is paid. The power is broken. Listen, the pollution is cleansed. 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We are clean in Christ. God never asked you to get yourself together. He just asked you to trust him enough to get you together. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. We are cleansed completely. And you know what? Because the partition is shattered, and the penalty is paid, and the power is broken, and the pollution is cleansed, the problem is gone. The problem is gone. The problem of sin is no longer your problem because it's been laid on the shoulders of Jesus. He's taking it on himself. Because of how intensely he loves you. Hear it again. He loved you and he gave himself for you. I hope you understand that when I came to understand this, it totally changed my life. And it is a gift that God delights to give. And I would be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity, whether here in the room or with Renovation Online, if I didn't give you an opportunity right now that if you are not yet a follower of the way of Jesus that right now Jesus wants to give you this gift. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. I just want you to pray a simple prayer with me that will change your eternity. Everybody in the room and everybody online, if you would indulge me just for a moment, every head bowed, every eye closed. Pray with me if you intend to pray this prayer today. Jesus, thank you for eliminating the partition of sin. Thank you for paying the penalty of my sin. Thank you for shattering the power of sin. Thank you for cleansing me of the pollution of sin. Thank you for completely freeing me from the problem of sin. So that today, I can be the masterpiece you made me to be. Gives me the gift of faith that I might believe. And grant me eternal life because it is your promise. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, nothing will ever be the same. Your life is forever changed. And if I could leave you with one last word that maybe this would sear into your brain and into your heart. The Son of God loves you and gave himself for you. And there's nothing more you need to do to be his. Let's stand and worship.